0: This was very exciting to me, especially when I started reading First um, and 2 Peter again. I don't know if you remember, but a few weeks back, we read this particular passage. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, and I told you that this would be kind of a precursor. It's verse 10 and 11. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Now we got this new series. You've seen the little posters. You can see one up behind me. They're hanging around. There's, we'll keep making them if you need to take them places and show people. There might be people you know who might want to be here. There might be people who just need to listen uh, online, which that is on the website. You can go on there and you can catch up. You can go back further. And you can listen to the messages as we get them on there, which will be early every week. Authentic Living Today is the series, and it's through First and 2 Peter, the letters or epistles of Peter. We only have two verses to cover today, but there's, there's a couple of stories that you need to know about in order for this to come together and make sense as we introduce it. So let's go ahead and begin. I want to give you a phrase right from the beginning, I want to say this to you. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. I told you about a mentor of mine by the name of Seth Wilson, and some of you have heard of him. He's a, he was a great speaker. He was a, a mentor to many and a very successful author. Now, Seth Wilson, oftentimes I couldn't tell, as I explained to you before, I couldn't tell when he was he was so wise, sometimes I didn't know if he was saying scripture or his own words. And, and it's a good habit to be in when you're talking with other people to, to express the word of God. If this is the word of God, this would be the wisdom of God, and I believe it is. If you can't get any wiser than this, why not have those words inside of you ready to just flow out? And a good phrase to learn is may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now, I lost another mentor yesterday to eternity. A man that, when I was in my high school years, he incidentally encouraged me more than he knew. Later in life, he became more of an encouragement, and he got sick, and I've been praying for him. He's had some uh, kidney problems. He's been on dialysis. His health has been failing, and as the photos that I have been seeing lately... um, painted a clearer picture to me that he wasn't going to be around a whole lot longer. And he went on into eternity yesterday, and it just reminded me of what we're going to be talking about today. Because I'm, I'm excited to talk about it. I'm excited to tell you about my other mentor, Gary Varner. Um, he, was, he was really somebody I looked up to, and, uh, and I don't think he ever fully realized how much of a mentor he was to me. He's just a guy in the church. And you too might be a mentor to somebody in the church. You might just be a man or a woman in the church, just, just one in the church who serves. And somebody might be looking at you and thinking, that's, that's what a Christian is. That, that's the way I saw Gary. And... Uh, When he passed away, I am excited I get to see him in heaven. And and I don't know if we'll recognize each other. Uh, Everybody will recognize everybody. But I hope I get to see him in heaven. I plan to meet him there. But it's that bittersweet thing. When you lose somebody here on earth to heaven, good for them. But it's hard because you miss them. You're not going to get to see them around here anymore. It's so hard. But remember that phrase, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. It's a good one for all kinds of circumstances, especially today. It begins in 1 Peter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You don't have to go very far into the letters of Peter. In fact, here we are in verse 1, the first part of verse 1, and we have controversy. Because if you study this at all, you will learn there are people that think That Peter didn't write this. There are people that think that uh, a a phony person wrote it. A person that was intending to honor Peter just wrote Peter's name as a disciple of Peter. Because Peter speaks much of persecution. And people say, well, the greatest persecution came after the death of Peter, so he probably wasn't around when this was written. There's other arguments. Uh, Well, Peter wasn't very educated he wasn't real knowledgeable about the Jewish things because he wasn't very educated. He wouldn't have been a skilled writer. He was a fisherman. and This is too complex. This is too detailed. This is too polished. This is, this is too good to have come from somebody who was an uneducated fisherman. But, you know, I recall when the church began on the day of Pentecost and the apostles were speaking and Peter took the lead, I remember people saying they could tell they weren't educated, but they could tell their words were from God. So so I don't buy into the theories that Peter didn't write this. Clement of Rome, a first century writer, contemporary of Paul, Clement of Rome wrote about Peter's letters being from the Apostle Peter. Other ancient witnesses did the same thing. So I don't give any credibility to any modern scholars who want to tell me Peter didn't write the letters that Peter did write. So, we'll move on past the controversy. It was Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. we move on in the verse a little bit more. To those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now some of you might like to know what that looks like on a map so you can see a map up behind me. You get a that's a large region. So this is going this is being spread out far and wide, but further and wider than what it actually says because this is inspired by God and here we have it in our Bibles today for us, it applies to all. But I want you to look back at that verse that we've looked at so far, and notice that word, who are elect exiles. Now, elect would be, these are Christians. These are people that have decided to follow Christ. They're special people in God's eyes. But exiles, some of your translations might say it this way. Strangers. Aliens. Sojourners. Exiles, I like a lot because Exiles gives the impression that this is written to Christians who have been punished. And part of their punishment is to be kicked out of where they belong. They don't belong where they are, and it's part of their punishment for being Christians the persecution has begun in the church it began even in the book of acts you saw the persecution as as very exciting things happen and you see this all the time in the prayer we just heard earlier someone just was baptized and a girlfriend passed away this happens you you get on this spiritual mountaintop experience and you think everything's going great and then you learn very quickly it's not going to be easy this christian journey haven't you learned this As soon as God's got your full attention, the devil is trying to get you distracted. So this is what happens in the early church. If you'll remember, there were multiple times persecution came, and it's like the devil tried to squash Christianity, and as he did that, Christianity simply spread. As the devil persecuted, as he got other people to do his bidding for him, and Cause harm, physical harm, emotional harm, and all kinds of problems for Christians, Christianity spread. That's the way it works. When persecution happens, that's often the way it works. And we saw that in the early church. And here, as Peter is writing this, he's writing to Christians who have been spread out far and wide. They are not where they belong. They are being punished for being Christians because they're being persecuted. That's the way, that's the way it works. But don't, don't wrap your head around that too much, because the physical location of these Christians, the punishment of these Christians, all of this, you need to understand, we too are in the same position. We too don't belong here. Our final destination is far better than anything on this earth and i don't know if you've noticed but if you try to live the christian life you will discover that life on earth is a whole lot more like hell than heaven most of the time you get tastes of heaven like being in church with like-minded people who believe in jesus christ and you get to sing with them and commune with them fellowship with them that's a taste of heaven i'm sure you feel that when you get around your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Church can be a taste of heaven. Bible study, fellowship in your home, even just conversations with fellow Christians. That's a taste of heaven that we get on earth. But most of the time, life on earth feels a whole lot more like hell than it does like heaven. We don't belong here. We belong in eternity with our Father in heaven. And so we go through this journey here on earth reminding people, There are better things than what we see and what we feel and what we're going through. There's so much more. And the only way to have access to that is through Jesus Christ. That's the Gospel message. Now, Peter is talking about Christians who are being persecuted from the very start of his first letter. He's already hinted at the persecution that they're going through. And by the way, Many scholars believe that Peter wrote this, because we'll see this as we move on, but most scholars believe that Peter wrote this when he was being persecuted in Rome, written from Rome. And the persecution, you know, the the central hub of the source of the persecution is Rome. So that's fascinating that he would write this, but I got to tell you something, because what we are going through today what you're going through your families are going through what people at work are going through or the former co-workers are going through what you're going through is very similar and i got to give you a story Uh, it's a couple of stories and these couple of stories they're they're mixed together they're right out of the bible but they are so worthy of making movies in fact there was a movie and some of you know you'll kind of get an idea like oh i watched that it's a historical fiction so it's not accurate and a lot of movies are not that that are based on true stories are not accurate very much but i want to give you some things that are right out of the bible you're going through revelation some of you are studying this on wednesday night and that's good for you but you can't really understand Revelation if you don't get an idea of what happened in Daniel, because there's a lot of language in Revelation that comes right out of Daniel. And I want to give you a little bit of this because it, it relates to what we're going through, what they were going through. It was around 600 B.C. Now that's a rough estimate about the time that these things happened. And it's in Daniel chapter two specifically, where I want to land just for a little bit. I want to show you this statue. You can see the statue up behind me. This is an artist's rendition of what King Nebuchadnezzar II had in his mind. Now, see, what happened is he had this nightmare. Uh, and in this nightmare he had this it was he had a couple of them, actually, and there's, one of them was this statue. He misunderstood, even after it was interpreted. but first, He wanted to go to his wise people, the wise people of the land. I want to know what this means. And I'm going to know how they know what it means because I'm going to say, hey, you got to tell me what my dream was and then tell me what my dream meant. Well,. The wise men that were around the king at the time said, oh, you, you can't do that. Nobody can do that. We can, that can't be done. And he was mad. So he said, that's it. I'm going to have them all killed. Every one of these wise people, they can't figure it out. then They can't figure out what my dream was, and they certainly can't figure out what it means. So I'm just going to have them all killed. Daniel was one of those wise men. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego as well. And he asked his partners there to pray. Pray for mercy. And God gave him mercy, gave Daniel a vision in his dream, an understanding of what Nebuchadnezzar II's dream was all about. So he got to go before the king and said, King, let me tell you what. You had a dream, and it was of this statue. And he described what you see behind me. That's an artist's rendition of various precious metals and some not so precious up behind me. And then he goes on to explain what the dream means. So the king is, he's got the king's attention, because he told him what was in his dream. Sure enough, that's what I saw. And he says, okay, let me tell you what it means. You represent the head. This would be the uh, Babylonian empire. That's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. You represent that kingdom that's the head right now, kingdoms of man. And then And then after you will come another kingdom. And this would be the the Medo-Persian kingdom. And then after you would come the Greeks. And then after the Greeks would come the Romans. Now, he's not given all these details, but he's explaining the kingdoms. And then there would be be a divided kingdom. That would be the Roman divided kingdom. And during this time, there would be a kingdom that would be made from the hand of God. No longer would it be an earthly kingdom. This is a... uh, this is an eternal kingdom. Christianity. That's where God established His kingdom during Rome's divided kingdom. That's exactly what happened. Now, what I'd like to... The reason why that's important, that's very important because it unfolded as, exactly as Daniel predicted. As, as he announced, it was in the king's vision. This is what's going to happen. It came down just this way. And it's pretty cool because that 's some six hundred years before it could come to play, but there it happened now what i 'd like to do is talk to you about if you 'll just pay attention to the belt of the of the um, statue because the crossover between the medo Persians and the Greek is the part of the story that has been made into a movie, a couple of movies actually but I want to tell you the the actual thing that happened because it relates to the bigger story i got to tell you about you see when king xerxes now king xerxes is not mentioned uh in the in most translations most translations say ahasuerus which is his other name there's a hebrew and then there's a persian name but he was king of the persians and at the time this Medo-Persian empire ruled the world, and he was the ruler of that empire. And there was one particular kingdom he hadn't conquered yet, and so he wanted to prove himself, because this is a powerful kingdom, no one near as powerful as the Medes and the Persians, but Greece hadn't been conquered yet. So... There was a a habit back then, there was a normal thing. The way that kings would communicate is they would send a letter, and that letter would go out and be translated into every known language. So the letter would go to the recipient, but it would spread. So everyone would know the king just said this to this other king. So he did that. King Xerxes sent a letter that essentially said to King Leonidas, the king of the Greeks, essentially said, you know, to avoid bloodshed, you know, we're more powerful than, than you, and you, you know this. We've conquered the known world. To avoid bloodshed, you know, his message essentially was, just give us your weapons. King Leonidas was obviously bothered because the whole world knew that King Xerxes just said, give us your weapons. And he knew if he did that, then so that's just surrendering to the Medes and the Persians, and his, his people would not be okay. So he wrestled with it, and he decided to send a message back to Xerxes. And his message was simply this, and you'll see it in the Greek up behind me Malone la Behe. I love saying that, it sounds tough. Malone la Behe. Have you ever heard that? It's a weird thing, actually. In the, it's not something that's officially accepted in the United States military. But you know how they have all these patches they can put on? The phrase Malone Lebe appears on some of these guys um, because they, they believe in it. It's a cool phrase. What does it mean? Okay, so King Xerxes said to King Leonidas, for, and all the world knew he said, just give us your weapons. And King Leonidas said, Malone, bête." He sent it out. It was translated in every known language. So the whole world knew King Xerxes' response. His response, come take. That's what the phrase means. And so Xerxes got together his army, and they're and it's on. So they went, and they went to fight the battle. And as they, as they, uh, as King Leonidas had set up a couple of battle lines, the Medes and the Persians defeated the Greeks at each battle line. But King Leonidas had taken his army, his men, women, and children, to the island of Salamis, and he retooled and retrained and prepared for the big battle. And history would mark down that this small army of the Greeks, it's not 300, the movie was an embellishment But this small army of Greeks defeated this massive army of the Persians. And King Xerxes went with his tail tucked between his legs, embarrassed, going back to Persia as a loser on the world stage. He was embarrassed. Now that story picks up Now, it was predicted, it was very well predicted by Daniel as he interpreted King Nebuchadnezzar's dream, but it picks up, it gets left off right there and picks up in Esther. King Ahasuerus is Xerxes. And there he is, embarrassed, because he's a loser on the world stage, but he wants to prove himself as a domestic leader. I'm still king here. So he throws these parties, and these parties he lets dignitaries and special people drink his very nice wine. In fact, he lets common people come, drink from his special goblets, the kings, customize containers. Hey, you can share in the wine because I'm king. Look at me. And as he's doing this, he's bragging to others and talking about, i got the most beautiful wife. Have her come out here undressed. And she said, I'm not doing that. And she didn't. And the advisors to the king said, you can't, you can't do that. If, you, if, she says, if she tells you that she's not doing that, then what's going to happen is all the men and all the land, they're going to have their wives not doing what they tell them, and we just can't have that. You gotta get a river, rid of her. So he got rid of her. But after a while, then he began to, to think, all the other guys have, all the other kings have wives. And he started to pout. His advisor said, Well, you know, you've got plenty of women to choose from here, but you know what? You can go into all the land, get the most beautiful women, select from them. You know, get them all trained and everything, prepared to be a queen. You can have the best. And you're the king. So he does that. One of the women that he finds is Hadassah. And ultimately, her name will be changed to Esther. Now, who is she? Well, she is an orphan. We don't know what happened to her parents, but it's a sad story. I mean, there is a child with no mom and no dad. An uncle has to take care of her. And he raises her like... She is his own daughter. He raises her very well. Mordecai is her uncle's name. And Mordecai teaches her godly things because he's a godly man. He's a man of God raising her to be a woman of God. And then all of a sudden, this king of Persia comes, and you understand, the Jewish people, and by the way, the, the term Jew is not used in the Old Testament until Esther. It's the first time. And as the the Jewish people of God, they've been persecuted, they have been spread out, they are not where they belong. Does this sound familiar to us today? We we don't belong here. They didn't belong where they were. And then he's trying to do his best to raise a godly woman in this horrible environment, this very secular environment, but he's doing a good job. And then all of a sudden the king sends his people out to gather the most beautiful women and they go to his house, and they say, we're taking her. And he has a talk with her, and he says, look, I don't know what's going to happen, but one thing you need to make sure you don't do, don't tell people you're a Jew. People hate us. People want us dead. People, people can't stand us. You ever feel like that as a Christian? People just don't like us? This is the way the people of God were then at that time. They, nobody liked them, except their own. So she gets brought into the king's harem, and there's a bunch of other women, you know, and they get to, they get to um, be trained and prepared and all that. And, and then the time comes for the king to select the one. And when he selects Esther, here's a very noteworthy thing. None of the other, the response of the women is, is, seems to be, well, she, if anybody's going to be picked amongst us, it should be her. It seemed most reasonable even to her competition. Yeah, that's, 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 that's a good choice. She was, she was a beautiful woman from the inside out because of the way she was raised. That's where beauty comes from. And so the king takes her as his wife. Now, understand, this king is very arrogant and the way he did things. is like, he, if you were going to approach the king, even if you're his wife, you have to have pre-authorized permission. And then if he decides he wants you to go ahead and approach him, he'll raise his staff and give approval. Then you can come. But she, she's not allowed just to have all the time access to the king. She's just there to look pretty and for him to say, see, this is my queen. She keeps it a secret. Now, Mordecai, he keeps his regular job. You know, he does, he's got to earn a living. But he still makes sure that he is at the king's gate every day. He loves Esther. He wants her to be okay. So he's checking on her every day. He's got to just make sure she's okay. Every day he is seen there. Just checking on her making sure she's okay. While he's there at the gate, he observes something one day. There's a couple of guards that are talking about killing the king. You understand, Mordecai doesn't like this king. He's a very secular king. He didn't vote for him. (laughs) And he wouldn't have if he was given the chance. Doesn't like him. But there's a plot to kill the king, and that's wrong. And he's now heard of it. And the right thing to do is to turn it in. So he, he, he tells Esther, you've got to warn the king. There's people trying to kill him. So she dares to approach the king. And she tells him what's happening. And they do an investigation. They find out, sure enough, there's a couple guys planning to kill, kill the king. So the king's like, whew, dodged a bullet on that one. Uh, write, write down the name of the man who saved my life. That needs to be recorded he saved the king's life that's, that's noble, that's huge so they wrote it down in the annals of the king so and then this man rises to the top in the king's uh, order of things his name is Haman <laughs> you're supposed to do that when you hear Haman you're supposed to like cringe Haman yeah there you go in fact, it's a, it's a thing that's a tradition that has been passed down for all these generations, especially when, there's a, when, a, when an adult shares the story in a home or whatever gathering, and someone says Haman, the kids usually like rub sticks together and like, ooh, people just don't want to hear his name, because he was known as an enemy of the Jews, because what happened is he rose up amongst the ranks in the king's order and the king appointed him at the highest level, and and this guy he was so arrogant, he was more arrogant than the king, and the king worked with him so that any time this guy walked by you 're supposed to bow down like you 're worshiping him and as he walked by Mordecai at the gate, mordecai, the man of god i 'm not going to bow down and worship any man, no and the the assistance to Haman, <laughs> they kept telling him, "Hey, you need to bow down." Mordecai didn't do it. He refused, and this got under the skin of Haman. <laughs> it got under his skin so much that he decided, "You know what? We need this, these. These Jews are going to. They're going to be a problem." There's going to be an uprising if we don't squash them. So he went to the king and started complaining. You know what? These Jews, they are going to try to take over if we let them. If we let them keep doing what they're doing, I I tell you what, what we need to do is we need to just exterminate them. He asked the king for the funding and the ability to go out through all the land and have them all obliterated, wipe them out. And the king gave his approval. And so word got sent out in that courier fashion where all, all languages hear it. They all knew, the whole land, everybody knew, the Jews are going to be exterminated. And they had a particular date set. Mordecai learned of it, and he began fasting, and he began praying, and he tore his clothes and sat in sackcloth and ash, and he was so upset. And, and Esther heard about this, hey, He's upset and she she was upset like, "Hey, let me hear some clothes. Put these on. You don't have to do this." And he said, "Hey, let me tell you something. Our people are about to be exterminated." And they had this conversation. It's a powerful conversation. You should read it. It is really good. And he told Esther, "This is your time." So she dared Approach the king knowing that she could be killed as he's done this already once and now she's going to try it again but he loves her he just thinks she's special so he raises his staff like come on come on esther what can i do for you anything i'll do it and she says how about a feast a feast where we 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 have a very great feast and then i'll tell you and, and, and when you, we want to invite your leader. Okay, okay just do that. We'll do that. So that's exactly what happens. Now, Amon is invited. And he goes around to his own people. And guess what? I got invited. The queen could have invited anybody else, but I got invited to a feast of the king. Ah, by the queen herself. Me, not you me so he's bragging he's all excited but it irritates him to no end that that guy at the gate that's the one that got under his skin and he wanted to kill all the jews because you know he won't bow down none of them will they're going to end up uprising he's so upset that he talks to his people and they say you know what you could do you could uh, use him as an example Give give all the Jews a visual of what's coming to them. Build this giant gallows so all over the city people can see it. And, and when he's killed in front of everybody, they're going to know what's coming. Why don't you do that? That'll make you feel better. Yeah. So through the night, he built this giant thing. He had a bunch of workers building in all the hammering and sawings going on. But that's not what bothered the king that night. Because he was he was going to have... Mordecai killed in the morning, and he bragged about it, told people. The word spread around, this guy is going to have Mordecai killed. Everybody knew, whew, he must have done something bad to tick him off. Well, the king can't sleep. It's not the hammering. It's not the sawing. It's something else that's keeping him awake. I think it's the providence of God, the sovereignty of God. And so he says, bring me something to read. I need to read. I can't sleep. I I just want to read something. So they bring him the annals of the kings, and he opens it up, and he reads, and he reads about Mordecai that saved the king, him. And he said, hey, what was done for him? Nothing. We didn't do anything for him. We didn't do anything for him? we should do something. And as he's doing this, he's having this conversation, Haman walks in. And so the king thinks, perfect, perfect. he says, hey, what should we do to honor a man that the king wants to honor? And so he thinks, "The oh, king wants to honor me, does he?" Okay, all right. So put on put you if you want to honor a man, you want to put on the king's robes. You want to put him on the king's horse. You want to parade him around town and you want to have it announced all over town. This is the man the king chooses to honor. Yeah, that's what I would do for me. I mean, for the man you want to honor. That's what I would do. And the king says, very good. Now, this is an interesting thing because I left out a piece. I wanted you to. um, Esther had gone in and talked to the king and this. There's another feast. And she goes in and she talks to him before the guy walks in. And she says, I need to talk to you. Okay, whatever, I'll give you whatever. And she says, Well, save my people. Because an evil person has come and convinced a king that my people should be killed, and that shouldn't happen. In fact, even this, this, this man that you're planning on honoring, he's going to get killed too. And the, the king's like, What? And he's, and who, who has caused this? And she says, Haman. <laughs> so he says, well, i tell you what, we'll fix that. So Haman's going to, has to parade around Mordecai all over town. And then the king, as Haman is saying, this is the guy the king chooses to honor. The king has Haman killed. And then he puts an order out for all the languages and all the land that says the Jews will not be killed. They will be protected. These are God's people. I mean, you think about what the king's perspective is. He only knew two Jews. One was his queen, who was the most beautiful from the inside out that he had ever seen and ever known. She was great. And then Mordecai, a man that he didn't really know that saved his life. So he promoted Mordecai. And and then God ordered his people Remember this Don't forget it He ordered his people tell this story have the story read every year to remember God's faithfulness to his people So if we focus I want you to think about that. And I, I want, maybe you're asking a question. The, the, by the way, the, what, what we call this is Purim. What is Purim? I know you probably heard Purim, but if, if you want to say it the most accurate way in the Hebrew language, is Purim. When is it? It's sunset this Thursday to nightfall this Friday. Well, how about that? This has everything to do with Peter's letter as he begins because the people have been scattered, they're being persecuted, and Peter is going to try to encourage them. And here we have a story that's a perfect parallel to this. And, and what's the moral of the story of Parim? Don't forget this. God is faithful to His faithful people. That's the lesson. Here they were, it looked like doom doom and gloom like they were all going to be wiped out hopeless but god is faithful to his faithful people authentic living today that's the message series the title of today's message is introduction because it's the beginning of the of it why this and why now well that's a legitimate question why go over first and second peter now I don't know if you've caught this much in what I've said to you in the past, but I want to make it clear. It would be good if you turned off the TV and turn off the social media. It feels like, to many of us, like the whole world's gone mad. And it's not real healthy for us to stay wrapped up in a whole lot of that stuff that's going on. Yeah, we need to know what's going on, but we don't need to stay wrapped up in it too much because it's, it's discouraging. I mean, it feels like it feels like the whole world's been taken over in almost every aspect by people who don't like Christians, God, Jesus, or the Bible. And that could be discouraging. There's a lot of things that, are, that appear to be coming down the line for us, and it's, life's not going to get any easier. It doesn't look like it. So you might be able to understand why your leadership thought, we should go through the letters of Peter. Now, we haven't even gotten to verse 2. Let's look at verse 2. We're only looking at two verses today. So let's look at it. Up behind me you'll see. And we're going to take it piece by piece. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father is the first piece. You'll see that highlighted. We're going to, this is a very colorful introduction, so I've got colorful highlights behind the letters so you can grab a hold of what Peter's doing according to the foreknowledge of God the Father so they're, they've been scattered they don't belong they are, they're being punished just because of their faith it doesn't feel good but God knows he knew what was going to happen he knows what's still going to happen he knows what's ahead and Christians it's good it might be hard right now but what's ahead is, is good God the Father is going to take care of His children. Remember the story of Purim. If you're faithful, He'll be faithful to you. And it continues. In the sanctification of the Spirit. You'll see that highlighted in a different color. What does that mean, sanctification of the Spirit? And What Peter's doing, he's talking about why he's writing this letter. That means set apart. The Spirit of God will take His people and He will demonstrate if you stay close to Him and you live by His Spirit, He will make sure it is very clear, we are not like the world. We don't even we don't act like the world, we don't look like the world. We are different. And the Holy Spirit will help us be set apart, holy. That's what God wants of His people. And it continues.